Uh, now, I wonder if you were called uh, a do-gooder, would you be flattered or insulted by that, if you were called a do-gooder? Uh, I suspect in our culture uh, at the moment that you would probably take that as an insult, um, because it's got that, that phrase has got all sorts of negative connotations of being self-righteous and a bit of a busybody, sticking your nose in uh, where it's not wanted. Well, a few years ago, Ian Hislop, who some of you will know from the TV, from uh, Have I Got News For You, and he's also the editor of, of Private Eye magazine, he did a brilliant little documentary series uh, on the BBC. I think I've mentioned it before from the front here. Really helpful, uh, where he examines the lives uh, of some of the main Victorian social reformers, some of which we know, some of which we don't. Lord Shaftesbury and William Wilberforce and Elizabeth Fry and a whole bunch of others. Um, and the, the, he, he certainly poked fun at them, as he likes to do. Uh, he certainly poked fun at them. But the big tone of the whole TV show is, while we often poke fun at these social reformers for being uh, prudish, um, we actually should celebrate, one, their heart, where they saw need and they responded, uh, and the massive impact that they made uh, in the UK. Uh, in Britain to bring real good uh, for those who were employees, for those dealing with the government, for those in prison, for those for the, the education, providing education. Lots of the wonderful privileges that we take for granted uh, today were actually as a result of them doing good. And the point uh, of his show, his show's called The Do-Gooders. Uh, and the point of the show is that he wants to actually try to reclaim that language. It's actually a good thing that they were do-gooders. Well, I want to try to do something similar this morning. I want to try to reclaim that language. Now, I don't want you to go away from here saying, Lee told me it's okay for me to be a busybody and stick my nose in other people's business and tell them what they should do. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I want us, after listening to what God says to us this morning from Titus 3, is I want us to be those people who are eager to do what is good eager to do what is good, not because we earn God's favor or blessing by doing good, but because we've already received it. And really, if you forget everything else this morning, here is the one idea I want you to hold on to. It's that the gospel, when you understand it fully, the gospel has the power to make you good. The gospel has the power to make you good. It is possible for us to be changed through the, the, the power of the gospel. And you'll see in chapter 3, this idea of doing good is all through the chapter. Uh, it begins with the idea of doing what is good, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready to do whatever is good. Then at the end of our little passage, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And then right at the heart of this passage is verse 8. And I want you to stress these things. What are, the, what are the, these things? Well, it's the gospel. We'll come back to that in a moment. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And when you spot that emphasis on doing good, and then you step back and you look at Titus as a whole little book, uh, you see that this theme of doing good uh, runs right the way through the letter. Uh, so back in chapter 1, verse 16, he's, 
been criticizing these false teachers. How do you know they're false teachers? Well, one of the reasons you know they're false teachers is they're unfit for doing what is good. Um, He then, in chapter 2, tells Titus to set an example to the young Christians there in Crete uh, by doing what is good. Um, Then in chapter 2, verse 14, when talking about the very reason that the Lord Jesus came to die and win himself a people, we read this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people uh, for his very own, eager to do what is good. And so all the way through the letter, we see that belief and behavior, principle and practice, they're all connected together. You cannot separate them. For those of you who haven't been with us uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at this letter, and, and the background for it is that Paul, one of the first itinerant preachers and promoters of Jesus uh, in the first century around the sort of Mediterranean, uh, he traveled with a little team uh, to Crete and began to publicly preach the good news about Jesus uh, and privately share the good news about Jesus, and a whole bunch of people it appears, were converted. They believed that Jesus really was God, uh, who really died to pay the price for their failure and wrongdoing. Uh, They put their trust in him, uh, confident that they could be forgiven and have hope, real hope, uh, for eternal life through him. And and all these little house churches, it seems, were planted all over uh, the island of Crete. For some reason, Paul seems to have to Uh, returned to the mainland, but he left uh, Titus, his uh, colleague and trusted uh, pastor, uh, to encourage, instruct, and organize these little churches uh, in Paul's absence. And this letter is Paul's advice to him as to how to do that. Um, And we said that the Crete of the ancient world wasn't quite the idyllic uh, holiday location Uh, that it is uh, today. In fact, describing the culture of Crete, we read these words, every one of their, sorry, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. You don't want to see that, those words next to the picture of Crete in the holiday brochure, do you? You don't, you don't want that. Um, But that was the Crete of the first century, and Paul is saying that even though this is the very unpromising looking soil, even Cretans can be changed by the gospel. Even Cretans can so grasp what Jesus has done with, for them that they want to do what is good. And I think for us, as we look at our own lives, uh, which we'd all admit is very unpromising soil at times, that we could be changed That's incredibly encouraging at the beginning of a new year. In this chapter then, back in chapter 3, Paul gives one command and one motivation. One command and one motivation. First, his command. Be a do-gooder. Be a do-gooder. In verses uh, 1 and 2, and then again he repeats it in verses 9 to 15. You see, it's possible for us to live schizophrenic lives. It's possible for us to, be, to, to think certain topics are Christian topics. Prayer, reading the Bible, going to church. That's, that's Christ, Christian things. 
But then there's, there's other things, non-God things, like politics and holidays and our finances um, and how we discipline our children, whatever it is. But Paul knocks that sort of schizophrenic thinking on its head. No, no, no. If you understand the gospel, if you have Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, it affects every part of your life. Every part of your life should be shaped and changed. And Paul spells that out in these first couple of verses. He tells us if we've understood the gospel, we should be eager to do what is good. What does that look like then? What does it look like? Well, doing good means uh, we are to do good to those who are above us in authority and those around us in community. Let's have the verses up first. To those above us in authority, verse 1. Paul writes, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. The word uh, subject, or sometimes translated submit, uh, is, is not a very popular idea today. Um, if I was to, to use that word submit or submission, I wonder what sort of ideas pop into your head. Um, if you are a child of the 80s, like me, uh, you might remember Big Daddy, giant haystacks, uh, and someone having their arm twisted up their back t- until they submit, uh, have someone else's will enforced upon them. Uh, or perhaps today, if you're a, um, uh, you're a UFC fan, uh, Ultimate Fighting Championship, you either knock someone out, you win by knocking someone out, or forcing a submission. Same idea, just way more violent. Um, but you get the idea? Forcing someone else's will upon you, that's, that's not popular. What Paul has, uh, when he uses this word submission, what he really means is that we recognize the rightful authority of another over us and we obey. That's what Paul means. We recognize the rightful authority of someone else over us uh, and we obey. Of course, the ultimate model of that was the Lord Jesus himself, wasn't he? He submitted, we're told, to the will of his Father. In the days of his life on earth, we were told that he uh, counseled that we should submit to the government of our day and pay our taxes. He submitted to the death sentence that Pilate pronounced upon him. He submitted. He recognized that rightful authority and he obeyed. Paul says that we are to do uh, exactly the same. And However, when we hear that, if you're anything like me, you suddenly think of all the exceptions, don't you? Ah, oh, but, but, but what if? But what if? But what if the government tells you to do something that God forbids? Or what if, what if, what if the government commands you shouldn't do something that God commands? Surely we're allowed in those circumstances to, to disobey, to refuse to submit to the government, and that would be a wonderful, noble thing. Well, the Bible does talk about those exceptions uh, in the first chapters of, uh, of Exodus, in the book of Daniel, uh, in the book of Acts. Let me just say, 
this passage does not talk about the exceptions. In fact, Paul is saying that the default setting, the normal pattern for believers living in a culture that is, on the whole, anti-Christian or secular, is that we should do, we make every effort to submit to the rules uh, of uh, the government there, to submit to the law of the land, to be law-abiding citizens wherever that's possible. And so what does that look like for us? Well, it means a whole range of things, doesn't it? It means what I find difficult here, confession time, uh, keeping to the speed limit. It means uh, obeying copyright law when it comes to downloading software or games or music or movies off the internet. Uh, it means uh, obeying, here's my own personal one, uh, it, it means obeying the dog fouling laws. Pick up the poo, you dog owners, if you don't do it. Do it! It means obeying the laws of litter. You get the idea we could keep going. It means we want every effort to obey the law of the land uh, because we are called uh, by the Lord Jesus who modeled it for us to be law-abiding citizens wherever that is possible. We are to do good to those in authority over us by obeying them. But then secondly, we're, we're to do good to those around us in community, to those around us in community because doing good is not just not doing bad things. It's part of it, of course, but it's, that's not the full picture, is it? Uh, doing good is actually positively seeking to be gracious and kind and loving towards others. Positively doing good. Is there any ways that we could do good to those around us? We'll get to those uh, particular examples in a moment. Um, Is there a way in practice that we could be serving those around us? What might that look like for us in East Belfast, in BT4, uh, or 5-6? What might that look like? Would you be willing to go on to the board, give up your time and energy and talent to go on to a school governor's board to do good in the area? Would you be willing to... uh, with the old people's homes in our area, with lots of lonely people stuck in there, be willing to go in and be a visitor. I was really struck just this week visiting Jennifer and uh, Gillespie, known to many of you, and uh, Marie Curie, the, 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 the ladies who volunteer their time and energy in there. It's humbling. It's a lovely thing to do. Is there an elderly neighbor who needs help with mowing the lawn or some shopping? Is there a stressed out young couple that needs you to do some babysitting so that they could get a date night? Is there anything, is there anything that you could do to be kind? And notice what Paul talks about here. It's not, if you go back to the verses, slander no one or at the end be gentle towards everyone. We're not to pick and choose the people that we're good to. It's, nice. it's easy in one sense to be good to nice people or people where, oh, well, they might pay us back a little bit later and maybe even do it better for us. It might be a good investment. No, no. Remember who Paul is speaking about? 
the Cretans, the liars, the lazy gluttons, and the evil brutes. That's who the church is to do good towards. Not much chance of getting much in return there. What are we to do? Paul spells out a couple of examples in practice. What does it look like to be kind, to be gracious, to be loving to those around us in community? Well, number one, we're to slander no one. Slander no one. I wonder how much shorter our conversations would be if we were serious about that. If you have a group of people, very, very often the conversation moves towards to talking negatively about people who are not physically present. That's what slander is, isn't it? Talking negatively about people that are not physically present. Exaggerating or making unfair criticisms. It's particularly difficult in the workplace, isn't it? It's almost our national pastime to to sort of slag off the boss when he's not around or she's not around. Um, And when all the other employees are, are putting the knife in to their reputation, do we join in with that? Do we condone that, laugh along with that? Paul says, no, 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 no. Cut that out completely. Slander no one. Second, we should not retaliate, should not retaliate. Be peaceable and considerate. The word peaceable there literally means you're to be not fighting ones. That's what you're to be, not fighting ones. The word considerate then is the the flip side of that. We are to be gentle. We're to be gentle. Um, And in both cases, Paul assumes that you're someone who in, in, the, in the grammar there, Paul assumes that you will be the wronged person. When you are wronged, the natural, sinful reaction for many of us is to retaliate, to speak words that attack, or to physically retaliate. Paul says we're not to be like that. We're not to be like that. We are... Uh, not to be so fragile in our ego that we need to do that. I have a friend of mine uh, who's a minister as well, and uh, he, we were talking about members' meetings, the joy of members' meetings. Uh, and he says, uh, I take the agenda up into the lectern uh, when I'm managing members' meetings, and I write the words every time in, in caps at the top with my pen, keep mouth shut. Hey, that's very wise. Because when, when, when someone is being critical of an idea, the natural reaction is to retaliate. Don't do it. Don't do it. Slander no one. You should not retaliate. And show meekness. Be gentle towards everyone. The, the, the word there is, is literally meek. Meek. Uh, meek really carries with it the idea of... It's, it's the opposite of arrogance and uh, self-promotion. It really carries the idea of being broken. Not broken like a glass bottle, shattered. This idea of being broken like a horse. It's been tamed. It's strength, but under control. That's what we're to be like. Strength, but under control. Gentle in the way that we treat other people. 
Paul doesn't want us to be busybodies and uh, interfering in other people's business. What he wants is for us to be humble, kind, and gracious. That's what it looks like to do good to those in authority over us and to those in community around us. And we see it uh, at the end of this little section. Paul gives a very practical example. I have two friends, Zenos the lawyer, Apollos. They're going to be coming to Crete. Make sure they've got everything they need. Be good to them practically. We are to be do-gooders doing good to those in authority above us, to those in community around us. Why? Why? It's one. Th- if I just said, okay, everyone, you just be good. Let me know how you get on with that. Tell me next week. That's, that's, I've maybe fleshed out what it looks like, but I've given you no motivation, and you'll never do it. You'll never do it. But wonderfully, Paul gives us a very powerful motivation for why we should want to be good. And that is because of the gospel, because of the gospel. Uh, There's a very, uh, the NIV that we use here, uh, and I've just been struck by this this week. Can I encourage, this is a random note, but can I encourage you, especially if you're young here and you come here regularly, bring a physical Bible. Bring a physical Bible. Know where stuff sits on the page and circle it and draw it and draw on it. That's yours. It's by the by. Um, Paul says here, the, the version we use here is the NIV, the NIV, and it's generally an excellent translation. It really is very, very good. Uh, but what is unhelpful for the NIV is sometimes, sometimes, uh, because it reads smoother in English, they drop out just a couple of the connecting words like for and since and because. Uh, they reckon it's probably not good to start sentences that way. Um, but some of them are really important. And this is an example where they've dropped one that's really, really important. And it's there at the beginning of verse 3. I've put it on your screen. For... Be good, be a do-gooder, for at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Why should you be good? Because you have, number one, you have absolutely no reason whatsoever to be proud and self-righteous and (laughs) self-absorbed. Look at you, look at you, look at me. This is what we're like. We have no reason to be proud and self-absorbed. In fact, God has been wonderfully, wonderfully kind to us, which should incline us to be wonderfully kind to other people. In spelling out what we were once like, Paul uh, takes the the seven vices of... uh, verses 1 and 2, or sorry, the seven virtues of verses 1 and 2, and gives us seven vices, which I think are the opposite uh, in each case. So rather than being submissive, we were fools. We were fools. That's what we were naturally like. Now, if you're a fool in the Bible, it doesn't mean that you're stupid and don't do well at school exams. Paul describes himself as a fool. We we're fools. Paul was one of the smartest guys in history. 
To be a fool in the Bible is to have no spiritual awareness of who God really is. And so you either live as a rebel, you live as if he's not there and doesn't matter, and so you do your own thing, or you're overly religious, and you treat God like a cosmic slot machine, and you put in the, the tokens of, of prayer and reading your Bible and attending church and pull the crank because you think God owes you. Either way, you have misunderstood who the true and living God really is. You've been a fool. Paul says we were all naturally fools. We were all disobedient rather than being obedient to uh, the government and to others, to the rightful authority. We were disobedient. And that's so often true, isn't it? We know the right thing, but we actually don't want to do it, so we don't do it. We're disobedient. Rather than doing good, we were deceived. Rather than doing good to other people, we, we were deceived into thinking life was all about me and my pleasure and my comfort. And so we didn't look out for anyone else because we were so busy looking out for number one. Rather than being in control, in control of our tongue, in control of our temper, uh, we were enslaved to our passions and pleasures. Rather than controlling our tongue and our temper and our money uh, and our lust, those things controlled us. Rather than living in harmony, peaceably, gently with other people, we ended up setting up false comparisons, uh, giving in to pride and prejudice, um, treating life as a competition. Other people were to be defeated for a prize, whatever the prize is. And so we ended up hating other people and being hated. That is a, a diagnosis of the human condition. Now you may be here this morning and you, you're, you, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus and you think that's way too pessimistic. That's way too pessimistic. But I actually think what you, the diagnosis you see here makes sense of the news that you see and read today. It makes sense of shows like Jeremy Kyle. Uh, I came across this quote. Um, I think I've used it here before, but I found it really helpful of G.K. Chesterton. He was asked um, back in the 20s, I think, to write an article for the Times uh, under the title, What's Wrong with the World? And here's what he said. Dear sirs, you ask what is wrong uh, with humanity. I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I think he's exactly right. This, what he's saying is that the seeds of all of those things in verse 3 are in our hearts. You put us in the right circumstances. You put us under pressure. And you'll see what comes out. Imagine I fill that glass. The water will stay on the inside. But if I shake it, suddenly what's on the inside will come to the outside. And it's, so it's, it's true with our sinful nature. We're very easy at looking respectable and masking it, but you put us under pressure. You put us in the right circumstances and what's on the inside soon comes to the outside. And that is true for all of us. And that is why verse 4 is the most amazing verse in the whole book and arguably in all of Scripture. That's true for me this week anyway as I'm examining this chapter. But when the kindness 
and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. The word love there is philanthropy. That's the word we get, sorry, is the word for love from which we get the word philanthropy. Love for fellow man uh, that we often use to describe the work of the Victorians and so on. But the difference between what the Victorians did, showing love and uh, spending their, their, their money and resources, they spent their money and resources on good causes. The shock here is that God does philanthropy, love for mankind, when we are not a good cause. We're not a good cause. We do not deserve it. We cannot earn it. There's not even any potential in the future that we might pay God back. But yet, wonderfully, God chose to set his love upon us anyway. That's the shock. Uh, And so God uh, has provided a rescue for us, not a reward. God acts in mercy, uh, not because of merit. Wonderfully, God has been so incredibly kind. He has done good, the ultimate good to us by sending his son to be our savior, verses four and six, and sending his spirit to us. Notice all the, 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 the members, the persons of the Trinity are involved in God's rescuing work. And that's what makes Christianity radically different from all of the other religions of the world. All of the other religions and philosophies of the world are about what you do to earn a good standing with a higher power. Christianity alone is radically different in saying, no, 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 it's about what God has already done for you in his amazing kindness. What has he done? Three things in these verses very quickly. Three things. He's given us a new start, a new birth. Verses five and six. If we go on to the verses. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal uh, by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's talking there about conversion when we've been converted. Uh, Two things have happened, spiritually speaking. It's as if we've been given a bath. We've been given a bath. Uh, It's no accident that actually baptism uh, in the New Testament seems to be tied up with the conversion experience because it's a beautiful picture uh, of what has happened to us. You see, sin does to your soul what dirt does to your body. Sin does to your soul what dirt does to your body. What does dirt do? It stains you and it separates you. If you want to get close to someone in any culture in the world, you've got to clean up. got to clean up. And wonderfully, what God has done for us because of Jesus, when we put our trust in him, we are cleansed, made acceptable to God, that we can draw close to him. It's as if we've been given a bath. But also, it's also describing a new birth, a new birth, rebirth by the Holy Spirit. When we baptize someone, um, most of you here have seen a baptism happen in this church. But when someone is baptized, we plunge them down under the water and then very, very quickly pull them back up again. We don't leave them down there. And again, it's a beautiful picture that we all, spiritually speaking, have been taken from a place of danger and death 
by a power not our own and given new life, new life. Not just a new start in life, but a new life to start. We've been given new birth. But then Paul changes the language in verse 7 from the language of the labor ward. He changes it to the language of the law court. Uh, He describes us as having been justified by his grace. Having been justified by his grace. To be justified uh, in the first century uh, was to be declared not guilty by the judge. And so you were in a state of justification at that point. You were declared innocent by the judge. Sorry, declared not guilty by the judge. Um, even in, some of that language even creeps through to some word processing today. So if, you've got, if you use Microsoft Word or if you use Pages uh, and you select a, a bit of text and you hit justify, what happens? It goes all square. Square down all the edges. And it's this idea, in many ways, that we are all square with the judge when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus. How's that possible? Because we are guilty. We're undeserving people. We are disobedient, defiant, uh, malicious. How's that possible? Well, it's possible because the Lord Jesus took the penalty for us. He bore our blame in his own body when he died on the cross. And we get to share in the benefits of being justified when we put our trust in him. And so if you're here this morning and you feel, well, look, I'm not a Christian, but I can never be a Christian. Uh, Number one, because I'm not bad enough. I'm I'm a nice person. I don't need all this religion stuff. If I was to have a chat with God, we'd work it out. First, if that's you, then you need to see verse three. That is how God sees you. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you think, I couldn't become a Christian because I've, I've, I'm too bad. If you knew the shameful things I've done, again, you need to hear verses 6 and 7. Anyone, anyone who comes to him and admits their guilt and acknowledges Jesus to be who he says he is and believe that he died on the cross for you, and you ask him to forgive you, you can be cleansed and justified. That is the promise. A new birth, a new status, a new hope, a new hope for seven. So that having been justified, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You see, our spiritual rags to riches story doesn't even stop with being forgiven. It keeps going. It keeps going. Not only are we forgiven, we actually get to share in the inheritance that's coming. We get to have a fantastic future guaranteed for us forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We have a new birth, a new status, and a new hope, such as the breathtaking kindness of God. And so then Paul comes full circle in verse 14. Stress these things, these things, that you have a new birth, a new status, a new hope, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. 
being kind to those who don't deserve it should for us be so beautiful, so captivating, that we want to follow that example. We want to be those people who do good to those in authority over us and those in community around us. Before we finish, I want to draw just Titus to a close uh, by spotting some repeated phrases all the way through the book. Uh, Here are some of the phrases. Three phrases are repeated in all three chapters, and they're all together, okay? And I want to show you what they are and then explain why they're together. Number one, Titus 1, we're told about the hope of eternal life in verse 2. In verse 3, Paul speaks of the command of God our Savior. And then verse 4, he speaks of Christ Jesus our Savior. In chapter 2, same again. Verse 10, he speaks of God our Savior. Uh, Verse 3 and 4, he speaks of the blessed hope uh, of God our Savior uh, and Jesus Christ our Savior. Sorry, those are both. That's a misprint. Those, the blessed hope of God our Savior Jesus Christ is actually verse 13 in chapter 2. And then in chapter uh, 3, verse 4, and 6, and 7, we're told of the love of God our Savior, Christ Jesus our Savior, connected again to the hope of eternal life. Why is it important that we are godly? Why is it, is it important we are godly and then that be expressed in doing what is good. Why? Because God, our Father, is a Savior. Because Jesus Christ, the Son, is a Savior. And he wants people to come and have the hope of eternal life. Alpha is a brilliant course to share the good news about Jesus. Christianity Explored is an excellent course to explain the good news about Jesus, but God's primary strategy for reaching your friends, my friends and family, neighbors, classmates, and colleagues, his primary strategy is through our godly lives because they will intrigue and attract and invite the question why. This is why it's important. Why is it important to be godly and have that expressed in doing what is good? Because we want to be like God. Because we find him beautiful. And then secondly, because it's God's strategy for reaching the lost. And so the challenge for all of us is, are you so captivated? Am I so captivated by the good news of Jesus that I want to be eager to do what is good? As we turn to communion now, as we celebrate what the Lord Jesus has done, we are celebrating the goodness of God. His humility. Jesus stepped down from the glory of heaven, took on the humble state of a man, and died for us. His kindness, when we didn't deserve it, uh, he met our greatest need. And showed his great love and commitment to us. As we share in this meal. We're we're saying sorry. I'm so sorry. Verse 3 of Titus 3. I'm so sorry that that's me and this was necessary. And then verses 4 and 5 and 6. Thank you. 
thank you. Thank you that you did that for someone like me. Let me pray for us as we come to share this meal together.